If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a one-time or reoccurring donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate tab in the menu. Donations made to Mayflower's Communications Fund are tax-deductible and help ensure that this podcast is available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church in Oklahoma City by the Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie, senior minister at one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie. Good morning. Welcome from Mayflower Congregational United Church of Christ, where no matter who you are or where you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. This morning, we finish our music and theology series, Jesus and Johnny Cash, connecting the good news of Jesus with the lyrics and song of singer and songwriter Johnny Cash. Will you bow your heads with me? Because it is their prayer, Holy One, it is also ours. Women, life, freedom. 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 Women, life, freedom, women, life, freedom. With our Iranian siblings, we pray, amen. Our scripture lesson this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3, verses 13 through 19, as well as San Quentin. From the Gospel of Mark. Jesus went up the mountain and and called to him those whom he wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, to be with him, and to be sent out to proclaim the message and to have authority to cast out demons. So he appointed the 12, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the names Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, and Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon, the Canaanian, and 
Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. San Quentin, you've been living hell to me. You've blistered me since 1963. I've seen them come and go, and I've seen them die. A long and long ago, I stopped asking why. San Quentin, I hate every inch of you. You've cut me, and you've scarred me through and through. And I'll walk out a wiser, weaker man. Mr. Congressman, why can't you understand? San Quentin, what good do you think you do? Do you think I'll be different when you're through? You bend my heart and mind, and you warp my soul. Your stone walls turn my blood a little cold. San Quentin, may you rot and burn in hell. May your walls fall and may I live to tell. May all the world forget you ever stood and the whole world will regret you did no good. San Quentin, you've been living hell to me. Here ends the readings from our traditions. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. If you are thinking that this sermon series has had significantly more prison talk than you expected, well, that's because Johnny Cash sang a lot of prison songs. Not all of them were about the woes of incarceration. Johnny sang a duet with Waylon Jennings about all that could be learned while behind bars, you know it. There ain't no good in an evil-hearted woman. And I ain't cut out to be no Jesse James. You don't go riding hot checks down in Mississippi, and there ain't no good chain gang. So many life lessons in that one song, which is why my dad basically used it as a lullaby when we were little. Obviously, it's what kept me out of jail all these years. It explains a lot, right? But on the whole, Johnny's prison songs are about solidarity and raising awareness. San Quentin, one of the texts for today, especially so. Unfortunately, it has aged very well. Our own Oklahoma County Jail is that same living hell, tragedy after tragedy. A week ago, we learned that after having his mugshot taken, a new inmate simply walked away from the booking area and sexually assaulted another inmate awaiting her release because she was handcuffed to the walls and couldn't get away. Just days before that, Oklahoma County Jail reported its 14th death this year. The deceased also happened to be suing the jail over allegations of torture during a previous stay. Or we could look to the Davis Correctional Facility in Holdenville, Oklahoma, a 1,600-bed private prison run by the world's largest private prison company, where at least 19 people have been stabbed, three fatally, in this year. A living hell. No one is learning anything but violence and death there. If you look at the track listing of the songs on Johnny Cash's album, At San Quentin, the song, San Quentin, is listed twice, back to back. It's 
not a typo, it, it really is on there twice. Before he played it the first time, Cash stepped up to the microphone and said, I was thinking about you guys yesterday. I've been here three times before, and I think, I think I understand a little bit about how you feel about some things. Indeed, Cash had been to San Quentin three times before. Cash played his first concert at San Quentin on January 1st, 1958. That first visit would come up later in an interview between Cash and another one and only country music star, Merle Haggard. The first time I ever saw you perform, it was at San Quentin, Merle said to Cash during his appearance on the Johnny Cash show. I don't remember you playing in that show, Merle, Cash responded. That's because I was in the audience, Merle said. Haggard did his first stint in jail at age 11 when his mother turned him over to the juvenile authorities as incorrigible. As a teenager, Haggard went to jail at least three more times and went out via escape at least once. In 1957, at the age of 18, Haggard was arrested on a burglary charge and sentenced to 15 years in San Quentin. He ended up serving only two years of that sentence, though, and he credits Cash with giving him the inspiration to straighten up, give up a life of crime, and get serious about making country music. You know, as soon as he got out of jail. Of Johnny Cash's prison visit, Haggard said this, he was a mean mother from the South who was there because he loved us. This is why when Johnny stepped up to the microphone at San Quentin, the room full of incarcerated men quieted. And they leaned forward a bit as Cash continued to introduce the song he would play. I tried to put myself in your place and I believe this is the way I would feel about San Quentin. The song begins with some heavy guitar notes and then Cash spat out a venomous opening line describing San Quentin as a living hell. And hearing that, the room erupted. For two minutes, the song continued in that vein, a sustained prophetic rebuke of San Quentin and the entire criminal justice system. Cheers erupted throughout the entire song, carrying Cash to his final biting line. San Quentin, may you rot and burn in hell. May your walls fall down and may I live to tell. May all the world forget you ever stood and the world regret you did no good. San Quentin is a raw, harsh indictment of the prison industrial complex, a litany recounting its inhumanity, brutality, and ineffectiveness. And with the song, Cash tapped into the heart and soul of San Quentin inmates. He channeled their rage and despair. When the song ended, the prisoners called out to Cash, insisting that he sing the song again. And so he did. Both renditions were put on the record. Three years later, on July 26, 1972, Johnny Cash found himself on a very different stage. It wasn't the biggest stage he'd ever been on, but it intimidated him still. 
On that particular Wednesday, Johnny Cash appeared before the Senate Judiciary's Subcommittee on National Penitentiaries to testify about prison abuse, the treatment of first-time offenders, peer-to-peer -peer rehabilitation, and recidivism. Senator Bill Brock, a Republican from Tennessee, introduced Cash by saying, well, first let me present Johnny Cash. Johnny is no stranger to prisons or prisoners from either point of view, inside and out. He made his first major appearance at San Quentin in 1959, returning in 1960 and 1961, but it was merely a sequel to his performance at the state prison in Huntsville, Texas, and two visits to Folsom. In 1958, when he was at Folsom, he met and held out his hand to a man who had been serving time for over 10 years, a fine songwriter and performer who is with us here today, Mr. Glenn Shirley. Glenn Shirley sat beside Johnny Cash that day, there to testify before Congress that he was evidence that the incarcerated could be rehabilitated and should be treated with compassion. Indeed, he did seem like the model ex-con. He went from behind bars to touring with Johnny Cash and having one of his songs included as the 15th track on Cash's Folsom Prison album. Greystone Chapel was the work of Glenn Shirley, who was serving time in Folsom for armed robbery of a bank. The song was about the chapel at Folsom and, it provided inmate, and how it provided inmates with an escape from the harsh realities behind bars, calling it a house of worship in a den of sin. The story goes that Shirley recorded the song in Folsom's chapel with the help of the chapel minister, the Reverend Floyd Gresset, who coincidentally was a friend of Johnny Cash. The night before the concert at Folsom, Reverend Gresset gave Cash a copy of Shirley's recording and Cash stayed up all night learning Shirley's song so that he could use it in the concert the next day. And the next day, late in the show, the time for Greystone Chapel arrived. The next song was written by a man right here in Folsom Prison. And last night was the first time I've ever sung this song, Cash announced to the audience. We may be a little rough on it today. Anyway, this song was written by our friend, our friend Glenn Shirley. Cash looked down at Shirley, who was seated in the rows at the foot of the stage. Hope we do your song justice, Glenn. Cash looked at his band and confirmed the key of the song, and then Carl Perkins started in. Upon hearing the first line referencing their very own Folsom Chapel, the crowd erupted. It was a symbol of Cash's bond with convicts and the possibility of redemption. After the show, Reverend Gresset introduced Cash to Shirley, and Cash promised to keep in touch and left with the resolution to help get Shirley parole if he could. Cash followed through. He spent months lobbying on Shirley's behalf, asking the California prison authorities to grant Shirley parole. He pulled strings, asking for Reverend Billy Graham to call Governor Ronald Reagan on Shirley's behalf. Cash even promised the parole authorities that he would provide Shirley a job if released. All of the advocacy paid off. On March 8, 1971, Shirley was granted parole. Cash announced to the press that Shirley would be joining his tour and signing a contract with his music publishing company. 
When Shirley stepped out of prison, Cash was there, waiting to drive him home. Things started off well. Shirley released a self-titled album that appeared on the Billboard country charts. He appeared with Cash before the Senate committee looking into prison reform, sharing with Congress, I was a three-time loser when John reached out his hand to me in 1968, and since then I sincerely believe that I have become a worthwhile person and can contribute to society. I wish this story had a fairy tale ending, but it doesn't. On tour with Cash, problems soon began to surface. In person, Shirley wasn't a very productive or effective songwriter, leading many in Cash's circle to wonder if he really was the one who had written Greystone Chapel. On the road, Shirley slept during the day and stayed up all night, interfering with his ability to keep up with the demanding tour schedule. Eventually, tensions got to the point that Shirley threatened band member Marshall Grant, I'd like to take a knife and just cut you all to hell. It terrified Grant. And upon hearing this threat, Cash sat down with Shirley and informed him that he was off the tour. Shirley divorced the woman he had married right after his parole. He resumed his drug habit. He started living out of his truck. And then on May 11th, 1978, he shot himself in the head. This is not the story we like to tell, but that's sometimes how it works out, which we learn from scripture too. Jesus experienced it firsthand. In the third chapter of Mark, we find Jesus calling the disciples. And you remember that Sunday school song, Jesus called them one by one, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Next came Philip, Thomas, too, Matthew, and Bartholomew. James, the one they called the less, Simon, also Thaddeus, the twelfth disciple Judas made. Jesus was by him betrayed. That last part, it's in the text too, but it's actually Mark's commentary. Mark was really into spoilers. <laughs> Jesus didn't know Judas would betray him at the time. In that particular moment in the story, Jesus had announced his plan of solidarity with the poor, the oppressed, and the outcast, and had gathered a team, the disciples, to help him spread the good news of the kingdom of God. Jesus chose people who weren't exactly known for their popularity or their wealth or their leadership skills. They were day laborers and fishermen and people who were just trying to get by. Jesus called them. And Judas was in the thick of it, a witness to the healings, the teachings, and the breaking of bread. Things started off really well. Judas seemed to get the Jesus movement. After all, it wasn't Judas fighting for a position of honor. It was James and John who were bickering about who would sit at the right and left hand of Jesus when the time came. 
Tradition even says that Judas was responsible enough even to take care of the money. Remember, he is the one who complained when Mary took a pound of costly perfume and anointed Jesus' feet instead of giving the money to the poor. But we know the rest of the story. In the 26th chapter of Matthew, we read, Then one of the twelve, who was called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I betray him to you? They paid him 30 pieces of silver, and from that moment he began to look for an opportunity to betray him. And he did betray Jesus. And then tragically, tradition says that Judas, like Glenn Shirley, died by suicide. The text is blunt in Matthew 27. He went and hanged himself. We don't talk much about Judas other than to say he was a bad apple. Perhaps that's in part because we would rather talk about what happened to the rest of the disciples who, though there were twists and turns, were wildly successful. I mean, we're here, aren't we? Their legacy, still talking about how Jesus plucked those nobodies out of obscurity and turned their lives around and made them into household names. They didn't go back to fishing and tax collecting as usual. They carried on the Jesus movement in such a way that we are singing songs about them and entire books have been written about them. This is the story we'd like to stick to. The Merle Haggard kind of outcome when it comes to inspiring and helping someone. The one that doesn't end in violence and death, but wild success. We might even call it salvation. After being released from San Quentin in 1960, Merle did manage to turn his life around. Between the 1960s and 1980s, he had 38 number one hits on the U.S. country charts, several of which also made the Billboard all-genre singles charts. He received a Kennedy Center honor, a Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award, a BMI Icon Award, and was inducted into the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame, Country Music Hall of Fame, and Oklahoma Music Hall of Fame. That's the kind of story we like to tell. But the stories of, Jesus, of Johnny Cash and Glenn Shirley and Jesus and Judas teach us some important lessons about solidarity that we desperately need to hear so that we do not fall into apathy or despair. As author Richard Beck points out, our trouble is this. We want solidarity and salvation to be the same thing, but they're not. First of all, when we confuse solidarity with salvation, we tend to objectify others. Whenever we see ourselves as saving people, we make ourselves the hero of the story, a moral drama in which we are riding in on a white horse. In that story, the people we so nobly rescue are just moral props passive recipients of our kindness and generosity, aren't they lucky that we showed up? A lot of compassionate people fall into this trap, failing to see how our desire to save others can be both selfish and dehumanizing. Solidarity is different 
than salvation. Solidarity doesn't presume we have the answers or the ability to save anyone. Solidarity makes us available to others, but it recognizes others' competencies. That is, that they are also part of working out their, fear, their salvation with fear and trembling, as the Apostle Paul wrote. That's not to say that we are useless, just that we don't dictate how or what or if we can be useful. When we are trying to save people, we are talking and giving directions. But with solidarity, we are listening and receiving instructions. With solidarity, we are with each other. We are not the heroes of the story. We are not separate and apart. We bear witness to the heroism of others. Mostly in solidarity, we are the ones being saved. The currency of solidarity isn't moral heroism, rescuing, fixing, and saving people. The currency of solidarity is relationship, mutuality, and friendship. This, this is an uncomfortable truth to sit with, that it is not our job to be the hero. It begs us to make sure that banking on a particular outcome isn't why we do the work. We do the work because solidarity is our calling as followers of Jesus. We work for peace and justice, and we offer mercy, not because we are assured that everything will turn out perfectly, but because that work is our salvation. Perhaps the most important thing that someone might say of us is what Merle said of Cash. He was there because he loved us. One more thing. After Glenn Shirley died, Johnny paid for Glenn's funeral. This, friends, is the gospel. Amen. You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie, Senior Minister at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church in Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at www.mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services are every Sunday at 10 a.m with Sunday school classes for all ages at 9 a.m. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street in Oklahoma City, one block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.